Welcome to Meetings with Remarkable Educators. This podcast is brought to you in part by you, our friends and supporters at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators. Each podcast is a dialogue between me, Ba Lovemore, and an educator who sees the greatness in their students and touches the whole of their being. These educators defy generalizations, so here's a little bit about what they've done and how I know them. Dr. Greg Cahete, this week's guest, is a pioneer in indigenous education and helping bridge the gap from indigenous education to science. He brings a profound holistic understanding and a wealth of experience to bridge these two worlds and very importantly to bring essential holistic understandings in the indigenous community to the rest of us so that we can begin to really profoundly understand how to remind ourselves of our sense of place and the opportunities we have to learn from indigenous cultures. I am thrilled and have profound respect for Dr. Kehete. Welcome, Dr. Kehete, and thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast, Meetings with Remarkable Educators. We so appreciate all the work you've done, and we're just thrilled, genuinely thrilled to have you uh, on our podcast. Well, thank you so much. I, it, it's also my pleasure to you know, have this opportunity to uh, share my thoughts you know, with regard to uh, indigenous education, uh, native science, um, you know, all of, all of the above in terms of the kinds of things I've been doing over the years. So again, yeah, thank you for inviting me to be on your uh, podcast. And how many years have you been at it, Greg? Well, I started, you know, as a high school science teacher at the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, which was a Bureau of Indian Affairs school. And uh, I started in 1970, actually uh, student teaching, 1974. And then uh, later on that year, I, I, uh, I got an appointment at the school. So uh, doing the math, uh, I'm going to say uh, 44 and going into 45 years now. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you again so much. It's it's so inspiring. And I know that I talk to many uh, remarkable educators, and they know of you and know of your work, and you've just inspired so many of us. So I would like to jump right into the notion of interconnectedness and relationship and relatability, because it seems like that's at the core, at the center of so much of what you bring forward. Is that a fair way to say that? Uh- uh, yeah, it, it actually is because, you know, early on uh, with my first, um, well, let me tell you a little bit of a story first, you know, with regard to, uh, you know, my, my start as a teacher. Uh, you know, I I have two majors. I had two majors, undergraduate majors, uh, graduating from New Mexico Highlands University in Las Vegas, New Mexico. And, um, and uh, the majors were sociology and a biology. So I actually was trained as a field biologist and really had intentions to go on to master's, uh, you know, get a master's and, and uh, you know, go into the field, so to speak. But um, I took a position, as I said, uh, at the Institute of American Indian Arts as the science uh, 
a teacher. Uh, at that time, they had a junior and senior high school that acted as a feeder to the um, two-year program that they had. It was kind of a middle school. <laughs> and um, uh, the, the two-year program, the, senior, the junior and senior program, was accredited by the state of New Mexico and required that science credit be passed. And uh, about a month into the uh, into my teaching, uh, the president of the school calls me into his office, and uh, I thought I had done something wrong. <laughs> I was sort of coming back and thinking, "Okay, what uh, what does the big, the big guy want with me?" Really, you know, the dreaded principal's office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so as it turns out, you know. Uh, they had uh, they had been impressed with my student teaching, and uh, and the president uh, asked me. His name was Lloyd New, if I could create a curriculum for the students uh, attending the institute that integrated science with art, with the cultural perspectives of the students uh, attending the school. Uh, again, this is a Bureau of Indian Affairs school. It uh, it, it it had students from basically all of the United States, uh, almost every tribe and, you know, every kind of configuration that you could imagine. And um, one of the major issues they were having was that the students hated the way science was being taught. And uh, they would ask questions, why do we have to take science in an art school, you know? And so uh, to address those protests, if you will, of students, he, he asked me very candidly, you know, we've been having this issue. Uh, students feel alienated from science and the way that science is taught. And um, they would say things like, there is no science in, um, in Native uh, you know, tradition, and there's no science in art, and, you know, these misconceptions. And so he wanted me to create a curriculum that uh, integrated science with art, with cultural perspectives of the students. So he gave me the resources, which was uh, um, in those days, you know, just a godsend. He gave me the resources and supported, uh, you know, the research uh, for me to actually create a curriculum from scratch. And that started me on, on my journey, you know, right there and then, which now 44 years later, I'm still working on that assignment, <laughs> but now in new ways and new contexts, you know. But I did create a, a curriculum that led to my doctoral dissertation, uh, Igniting the Sparkle, uh, an Indigenous Science Education Model. And um, and that brought forward, uh, you know, my focus on interrelationship uh, and uh, integrated studies and uh, integrating art with science, with cultural perspectives of Aya people uh, and Indigenous education. Uh, and in that process, I began to see that um, there was uh, an amazing, you know, uh, connection, interrelationship between all of those disciplines, those those orientations uh, in Native thought. Uh, but uh, you had to look at it from a uh, kind of metaphoric perspective, and uh, uh, that started me. Uh, into looking at uh, how do you actually create a system of education that works for Native students, while at the same time uh, utilizing 
you know, the the, the uh, foundations of art and um, cultural perspectives and uh, basic principles in science and weaving them together almost like the, weaving the rug or, or making a basket that allows students to really engage all of those disciplines um, and uh, really become uh, very engaged in, in the lives. So I, I created the curriculum. And of course, the students were just, you know, into it. They just simply said, this is what we've been looking for. This is what we want. Um, and, and so we developed the, the, the courses of study. And that led to, you know, other courses. And um, so it was amazing. It was an amazing transformative uh, energetic process you know once i was able to sort of um, open the doors for students in that way i noticed that uh, in in reviewing your work again that uh you bring forth the amazing scientific uh, capacities that have been exhibited through native people uh, by native peoples throughout the years the um, aqueducts uh, from the uh, South American indigenous people and, and others as well. Is that the kind of science that you integrated into the curriculum? Uh, yeah, it, it actually is because I, I realized very, very early on in, in this process of developing the curriculum that uh, most of uh, the students didn't really know Native history or many times didn't know their own histories from their own uh, tribal groups, and so one of the first things I began to do is is really uh, bring in uh, the cultural histories of indigenous peoples, but particularly as they related to science, uh, which includes you know aqueducts and and uh, traditional forms of gardening and traditional forms of uh, fishing and hunting and uh, you know knowledge of plants and uh, animal habits and uh, sense of place and uh, astronomy. So, you know, once I opened that box um, and was able to select kinds of examples from cultural histories of Native peoples, uh, the students began to to uh, really become very interested in um, uh, what I call Native science. But in the process, we're also learning Western science principles, ideas, perspectives. So that was the idea, you know, to engage the students in a, in a very uh, holistic and very creative way. You know, uh, I'm also an artist, a self-taught artist, so I was able to relate to students, you know, in terms of um, the artistic process and, and, and looking at how art could be used to exemplify uh, what the students were learning about in, in science. Well, in the Western science, almost every one of the paradigms and, and, the, and the basic paradigm, there's an objectification of that which is studied and particularly nature and processes like that. And it's as if it's outside to be operated upon and objectified. And there's often textbook and theoretical frameworks that are, in my opinion, kind of limit the investigation. Um, And it sounds that when you talk of the indigenous perspective and what you were bringing forward, that they wouldn't go together. How do you marry those two? 
Well, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, there is a, there is a kind of uh, conflict, and it's a conflict at the at the level of worldview. You know, Western science is very much uh, a product of the Western worldview, uh, and I would say it epitomizes it. You know, with its focus on uh, objectification and on the material world, on uh, either or uh, logic, on reproducibility. And uh, as opposed to uh, native uh, epistemology uh, and ontology, which looks at uh, relationship, relationship, relationship. You know how how are things interrelated? How do how do you see those patterns? How do you understand them? And how do you celebrate them and apply them? You know because uh, native science is a very applied science as well. So there were very practical uh, kinds of, of ways in which Native peoples applied their knowledge of interdependence and interrelationship to actual problems and issues uh, in uh, science. So w what I did was basically not try to marry the two, but rather to compare and contrast and in terms of looking at the Western science uh, methodologies, uh, you know, uh, appreciating those and using those uh, to 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 apply to certain problem sets, uh, let's say uh, environmental pollution of the stream in a, in a uh, tribal territory, and how would science approach, um, you know, uh, taking a look at uh, some solutions, you know, to to mitigate that circumstance, that situation. So, so I tried not. I tried to bridge the two worldviews, not so much to marry them, but to bridge them and to begin to to show that uh, that the native perspective had uh, a kind of um, integrity, but also Western science uh, had its own integrity, and that if you could bring the two together, you would have uh, you know a very powerful. Uh, you know, duo of of uh, and also a process of of looking at problems and issues in the world today, and so that's kind of you know, the 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 paradigm that is is beginning to take hold, at least among native uh, people, as they begin to practice science and you know, focused on community issues. You know, issues of need in. in in their own tribes and in their own uh, regions. This question is just my own personal interest, and it has so much to do with what I've been uh, trying to explore uh, in myself and in my work and in my relationships. And that is, and you touched upon it with questions like epistemology, with uh, statements like epistemology and ontology and differing worldviews. And um, I notice that even when Western science comes to a place where they have to notice the interrelationships, uh, have to include themselves, like in uh, quantum mechanics or um, even philosophically through uh, existential inquiries and so on, that it's still very, very hard for the, uh, for the, for the Western people to give up that separation and that objectification. And yet what it sounds to me like you're offering is that there's a knowing, if you will, that arises from the interrelationship that allows this different kind of uh, activity and integration uh, with science and the world. Do I have that right? I mean, I struggle with these questions. 
yes, and and actually, uh, you know, that was kind of the quintessential question I had to address in in developing uh, this curriculum at IIA. So, I search uh, I searched um, high and low for a kind of methodology that I could actually use. And in the end, I adapted uh, a methodology for researching curriculum uh, that was developed by Robert Zayas back in the 1970s. He was um, a curriculum theorist in education and had written several books uh, that dealt with the whole notion of how do you actually research a a curriculum uh, from its very beginnings. using uh, epistemology, the social, cultural foundations, uh, you know, the nature of the learner, and then finally theoretical orientations, you know, to begin to address and create, actually, curriculum. And so I adapted his work to the work I wanted to do with um, the curriculum at IIA in Native Science. And um, again, this is, uh, you know, innovation and creation, you know, uh, that didn't really exist a, a methodology for doing this, but uh, by looking in, at what was already there and what other people had done, I was able to sort of, uh, in a sense, as an artist does, cobble together, you know, create a, a, a new model out of uh, uh this and that and and those kinds of materials that are available to you, those kinds of ideas that are available and and so it, for me it was a it was very much like uh creating an orchestration you know as a musician or a conductor would do in in creating a um a a a, uh, a musical piece uh pulling in different kinds of ideas and perspectives, seeing how they fit so in itself it was like creating art. But uh, but in this case, I'm creating a curriculum. So uh, so it was a hit and miss process in in the first uh, year or two. But uh, because uh, the, the Zayas model is a research design model for curriculum, you know, I was able to adapt that and, and in a sense come up with a um, a, a model. And uh, then, based on that, uh, begin to to teach uh, in a variety of different kinds of ways. You know, uh, native science, uh, and in the same process, uh, get students to to understand basic science concepts and principles. And uh, and it worked. It worked uh, wonderfully well. Uh, as a matter of fact. Uh, you know, the new buzzword in science education is STEAM, which is the integration of arts and humanities into the teaching and learning of art. And, of course, we were doing that in 1970s, you know, at the IAIA, the Institute of American Indian Arts. And so it seems to just beginning to to, to gain steam, <laughs> if you will, <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. as, as we yes. speak in, in science education circles so that I... Uh, I guess I was ahead of my time in that sense, but um, you know, I was looking at a practical issue with the students and the need for a new kind of a model. And getting back to your your original, you know, concern and question about scientists, uh, I've had the same, you know, experience with many scientists who've been 
very conditioned, you know, and I'm also, uh, you know, a, a field biologist, so I know how that conditioning happens. If you're not aware of it, you become uh, totally conditioned, you know, to the Western science view and perspective of the natural world. And unless you have uh, some other kind of frame of reference, which I did, um, you know, uh, you, you, you basically, you know, buy it, buy it hook, line, and sinker, and it becomes your, your consciousness, you know, and, and it's very difficult to overcome conditioned consciousness, you know, uh, uh, but I feel you can actually teach uh, scientists if you begin to teach science in this way uh, early on, because it's not just using uh, native cultural perspectives. You can actually use any cultural system uh, to compare to Western science to begin to uh, come up with the same kinds of uh, you know results and, 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 and perspectives that I did, you know, in, in working that. Um, model. Uh, I left the institute uh, after 21 years there, and I've been at the University of New Mexico, uh, recently stepped down as director of Native American Studies after 18 years. But I applied the, the same ideas and perspectives, but this, in this case, you know, creating a Native American Studies curriculum, very much as what I had done at the IIA. And again, I have to say it worked beautifully, uh, extremely well. Uh, because again, in Native studies, you know, you're, you're studying Native perspective, Native understandings of the world, Native issues, and uh, and you're up against, uh, you know, mainstream Western thinking, you know, and in, 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 at every step that you go. So it's a strategy that has worked for me, and I think for my students, you know, over these many years. And um, uh, I've written about it, but. Uh, you know, being uh, a Native scholar, you tend to be in the margins, not in the forefront. Uh, but I'm certainly well-known in, in, in the indigenous circles. Well, I would do all I can to make you more well-known in, in every circle, because this is really the heart is of what I understand holistic education to be about. And it's to allow, really, first and foremost, the stepping into the worldview of interconnectedness. And without relationship-based education, we, well, we see the results of that. And I'm sure that relationship must be at the heart of your curriculum. Is that correct? Yes, it is. It is. It's really understanding the world in a, in a much broader, much more, uh, I think, realistic way, <laughs> you know, in, in the sense of the complexities and, uh, and the whole that we, we are all a part of and that we impact and that impacts us. So that, um, so, so this trains the mind, you know, I, I, I guess what I, what I realized, you know, uh, uh, you know, I was working with native students in those days and I'm still working with native students, you know, in, at the University of New Mexico. But well, what I realized also is that um, it, it, this is a kind of reconditioning of the mind, you know, through, uh, through a curriculum intervention that broadens perspective, broadens consciousness um, deliberately. That is <laughs> beautifully is said. What, uh, that we, is just gorgeous. Thank is, you. Yeah, this is what we need uh, in science today. We have to be able to 
to have scientists of the future have a much broader perspective, a much more comprehensive, holistic view of what they do as scientists. Uh, if, if we're going to uh, address the challenges before us, which are immense. It's teaching story time. Briefly, teaching stories invite us to see the world with a new perspective. Often featuring a wise fool or trickster animal, they can be humorous with many shades of meaning shining through the story. I have told teaching stories for the past 40 years with great effect, not only for the listener, but for me as I have learned so much about myself through recounting these stories. Today's teaching story is called Once Bitten. A man borrowed some money from the wise fool. The wise fool thought he would never get it back, but gave the money nevertheless. Much to his surprise, the loan was promptly repaid. The wise fool brooded. Sometime later, the man asked for the loan of a further sum, saying, You know my credit's good. I've repaid you in the past. Not this time, you scoundrel, roared the wise fool. You deceived me the last time when I thought that you would not return the money. You won't get away with it a second time. Let's have some fun interpreting this teaching story. Become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators. And you have access to our detailed comments on how this story applies to education and parenting. Of course, that's just our perspective. The fun comes with community dialogue as the many shades of the teaching story come alive. See you there. I have a I have a question that's been that I've struggled with again and I'm just just I guess taking advantage of this great opportunity to talk with you and um <clears throat> excuse me I don't know if if this is where we want to go so just bear with me while I try to ask this question. And I've worked, uh, many uh, environmental educators have come because of my work in holistic human development and asked me about, well, how can we bring environmental education more to the students uh, that we deal with? And in speaking with them, with the educators, I noticed that they had a sense of interconnectedness. That is, they knew that the the environment works together, that everything's interrelated, that there's a, uh, you know, that the tree is not just a tree in some sort of objectified way, but an integral part of the world. But there's a different place that I feel lives in me that I struggle to articulate, it's not just that I know that, you know, we're all downstream and, and that sort of interrelatedness, but I don't know how else to say it, except I don't feel separate from tree or I, I even have a hard time sometimes using the word to, if people understand it as an object out there. Uh, do, do you have a sense of what I'm trying to ask here? Something about a different way of being uh, as, as as the whole, not just, oh, I'm part of the whole, but as the whole? I uh, Yeah, I, I do have a sense of what you're saying, and I, I think that, you know, I've experienced that, and, and also uh, in, in the process of developing uh, my curriculum, 
or curriculums um, that, uh, you know, the, 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 the essence of that or seed of that, that question lies with our, our experiences with nature, you know, with, our, uh, with enhancing and nourishing our biophilic sensibility, you know, of, of what uh, and how we are connected and to actually feel that, to embody that. And so here's where art and, uh, of course, a lot of, uh, you know, Eastern uh, traditions of mindfulness, um, Native traditions are also uh, mindful, you know, uh, in which there's a kind of choreography of consciousness, you know, based on experience, based on engagement, based on relationship, that that brings forward this this consciousness and and sort of uh, uh, nourishes it and 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 brings it into fruition. And uh, I saw that uh, extensively with my students, you know, as they begin to deepen their understanding of uh, native science, and they were looking at science, and they were doing their art, whether it was writing or poetry or uh, just, just you know, uh, creating stories that they were beginning to to embody and 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 ground, you know, this um, kind of intellectual um, aspect of uh, academic, you know, training or academic or education, and ground that in, in in the personal experience that they were having and the encounters they had with the natural world, and and they were beginning to articulate that visually uh in, in the form of story in in the ways in which they were describing what they were doing you know and, and learning about an aspect of nature uh or learning about animals or plants or, or astronomy uh so uh, i i guess in answer to your question i think uh teachers also need to be trained in a similar way that, um, you know, I've described for scientists in, in that teachers, um, you know, I, I'm also a teacher educator, you know, a professor in the College of Education. So I see this time and time again that, you know, Western teaching is very uh, intellectual. And, uh, of course, there's an applied aspect to it, but but it, it rarely gets to that emotive or what we call the affective dimension of, of how, how you feel about what you're learning and what you're doing. And uh, that grounding of, of the experiential consciousness in the, uh, in the work that you're doing. And, and I think that, um, you know, even for that, that, that we have to begin to take a look at how teachers are educated, you know, towards these same ends. Because ultimately, they they are the they are the people who have the greatest impact on our young. Uh, and and uh, all of this is a is a developmental process. You know, it goes through, starts with early childhood and moves all the way through to you know uh, when you're in your 70s, 80s, and 90s. You know, uh, it, it's a continual learning process. But um, you set it up. You set it up early, and you certainly can set it up in the way in which you teach teachers how to teach for this kind of outcome. And and I've run into, and I do teach 
teacher education as well. And I've run into the same problem that you're just describing with some teachers and with uh, many, many scientists. I I wanted to kind of branch over because I know you speak uh, of experiential education and experiential learning, and you just described a little of it. And I just wanted to describe to you for a moment um, a process I did with some environmental educators and students. And I took them out uh, and we sat in a clear cut. And I just asked them to sit there and uh, when for a few minutes with their, you know, in silence, and then to either write or draw whatever was coming up for them. And then we walked about oh, a half a mile or a mile into an old growth forest. And I did the same thing with them. And then I asked them to either read or uh, share their stories uh, or their art to one another. That's the kind of teaching that I feel is really effective. Is that in line with what you mean by experiential learning? Yes, yes, that's exactly. And, and you know, there's so many kinds of ways that you can you can get the student to embody what they're learning about, you know, through actual experience and through through their engagement, you know, with that. Uh, because the the real learning, from from my perspective, you know, ultimately is affective. Uh, the the objective, you know, which is kind of the mantra of uh, science is. Um, from another perspective, you know, can be said to be illusion. You know, it's how we relate <laughs> to, how we relate to, of course, there's a, a material objective, uh, objective that can be objectified in material universe, but it's how we feel about what we're learning about and when we're learning, you know, that uh, creates uh, the human meaning, you know, uh, and that's the affective dimension. And that's been, in a sense, and, in many ways, oppressed, you know, by our current uh, approaches to education in the modern sense, you know, focus on assessments and tests and evaluations. And is that what you mean by metaphor? When you say metaphor as a really uh, important way of transmission, it, are you saying then that in a certain sense, just seeing things only for their physical or objective reality isn't really seeing them in a whole way? And so metaphor allows us to branch out into a greater understanding? Yes, uh, actually, I, you know, I, from my perspective, uh, metaphor and analogy, you know, form the, the basis of what I, I consider truly creative science because it's our ability to, uh, our human ability, our brain's ability to metaphorize the world. Uh, I call it the metaphoric mind, and um, it's our oldest mind, actually. <laughs> it's, it's the mind that developed uh, early on, you know, in human consciousness. And, uh, you know, it gives rise to stories, it gives rise to uh, how is one thing related to another and how can I articulate that in a different way. Uh, uh, you know, it, it allows us to create bridges from what, what we know to what we don't know and sort of figure it out. Uh, so the metaphor, you know, was utilized uh, extensively by Native peoples, uh, particularly in their story forms or story traditions, where, uh, uh, you know, you, you, you uh, read or you hear a Native story 
at, a diff at different stages in your life, you know, if you're growing up in a Native community. And at each stage, because of your experience and, and of your life experience and maturity, you hear that, that um, story in a, a slightly different way or in a new way, or you get some new insights based on where you happen to be in your life cycle. And so the metaphor was extensively used, you know, to to create a a, uh, a teaching that could be utilized and could be interpreted uh, at almost every stage of your life, you know, with new new meanings and new new insights. Uh, so that's the metaphor, you know. The metaphor, you know, is well known in literary circles, you know, and and. Certainly, you know, we we uh, we look at movies like Star Wars or or uh, uh, you know uh, Lord of the Rings or uh, and and what they're using is basically metaphors, you know, throughout and and so that the metaphor lives, but it's it's many times not given the credit that it that it should be, and certainly it lives in science as well, um, but. Uh, again, I, I really use metaphor uh, in a variety of different ways, you know, to describe uh, and to build those bridges between Native thought and Western thought. Have you had any luck converting what we might call the traditional traditional Western science uh, scientists to, to taking this much more broad and holistic and interconnected view? Is there any hope in allowing scientists to grow into what we're speaking of today? I I I, I have hope. I, first, I, I don't know that. Our current education system, you know, from K through 12 in, in its in its institutionalized public sense is, is going to change very quickly. Uh, it probably will crumble and crash before it changes, you know, uh, because it is so vested. But I have confidence in um, a lot of young people today who I've, you know, uh, taught and work with uh, that they have uh, a certain intuition and, and sensibility, and if you give them the right tools, you know, to work with, and give them the encouragement and mentorship, that they move forward into the world and begin to make those changes and those transformations. You know, uh, it's not the institutions that do that; it's it's the individuals that have. In many in many cases, like my students at IAI originally had become alienated, you know, from that system, from that institution, from that way of mm -hmm. consciousness, and are looking for new new ways of being human in the world, and uh, in that process, you know, uh, utilize uh, science as as uh, as a way to to create and to explore and to uh, engage. Uh, and, and to address any of the issues in the natural world that we that we have, um, you know, created, you know, as a result of our civilization. So I, I do have uh, confidence in individuals, not so much in institutions. Um, uh, working for an institution myself, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of, and also as have been a former director or administrator. I'm very aware of of the limitations, uh, but I'm also 
profoundly uh, encouraged by uh, many of the students that I've taught in, in, in over the years who still have uh, a creative flexibility, you know, and uh, you just have to work with them a little bit to bring it forward. And um, so, you know, I, I've written many books. Uh, I've written seven books, and I'm going to write my eighth book. And this is going to be an edited book with just all of my students who have uh, oh, know, fantastic. Created, created their own curriculums, you know, over the years that I've worked with them. And uh, I'm thinking that this is going to be a very powerful book because uh, yeah, a lot of these uh, these young educators have been off the radar. <laughs> you know, they've been in the margins off the time working on this project or that, but they've been making impact in ways that um, are amazing, I think, you know, in terms of the people and projects and communities that they've been working in. So that's what I want to sort of, Emphasize and it kind of addresses your question in the sense that, uh, you know, that it's really individuals that will make the difference. Uh, and those individuals connecting together. I, I remember an experiment uh, that I did early on in my work in biology where, um, you know, you get some muscle cells and each muscle cell is beating at a different rhythm and different rate. But just as they get closer and closer together, they begin to pick up each other's rhythm, and before you know it, they're 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 beating uh, or pulsing in in rhythm and in tandem and in time with each other, and that's what I'm seeing with uh, many of the students. You know, um, they're they're picking up the beat, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know they're moving it forward. But it's not it's not the it's not the huge institution that's the sure. Well, um, I mean, I we on my side we could talk for many more hours, but podcast time is is kind of up for us. I'd like to ask if you would just have any last words or maybe a comment on something I haven't covered that you wish we'd covered, or just some words to our audience uh, uh, to leave them with. Well, I'll, I'll just play off uh, what I've just said in terms of the muscle self. <laughs> And, uh, you know, from my perspective, you know, there's uh, three quintessential questions and issues that we face in education today, and they all deal with relationship. Uh, first, you know, how do we recreate a proper and more sustainable relationship with the natural world? And then the other one that's connected to that is um, how do we uh, create uh, a sustainable and wholesome relationship with each other, which is the multicultural issue? And then the third one, you know, deals with uh, our own consciousness, uh, our spiritual consciousness. How do we, in a sense, create a consciousness that will move us forward into uh, a very challenging future for humankind? And We've got to create the education systems uh, and processes that will allow us to at least have uh, a, a way to address all those three kinds of uh, challenges, those three kinds of issues. So for me, uh, my last book was uh, called Indigenous Community, Rekindling the Teachings of the Seventh Fire, and in that I use a metaphor. Uh, community is the medium and the message. Um, many of the kinds of issues that we face today in education or uh, with regard to the environment or 
the social issues or the political issues, you know, uh, which are all related, uh, are going to require a community, not just individuals, but uh, heart cells, you know, coming together and beating as one in, in, in the form of community and beginning to, to address these issues collectively in a way that uh, allows us you know, to sustain ourselves uh, and nourish ourselves into the future. So I hope that, you know, as, as we say, um, you know, in, in my language, I'm from Santa Clara Pueblo, uh, Tewa Indian, and uh, we say, uh, which means uh, for life's sake. And so we do this for life's sake. Um, for ourselves and for the generations to come. So thank you so much for this opportunity. I appreciate it greatly, and uh, happy holidays. Well, same to you, and thank you so much for joining us. Meetings with Remarkable Educators is brought to you in part by our friends and supporters on Patreon. If you enjoy our podcast and want access to enriching gifts for parents and educators, please visit patreon.com slash remarkableeducators and consider becoming a patron. Your support means the world to us and will allow us to continue this essential project. Our sound engineer is Dimitri Young. Our webmaster is Nathan Young. And our all-important social media maven is Cleo Young. All podcasts are transcribed with show notes and can be found at remarkable-educators.com. This is Ba Lovemore reminding you that holistic relationships with children leads to joy and self-knowledge with the adults in their lives. With respect for you and for children everywhere, see you next time.